Hey everyone, this week's episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, Ledger, and Our Crowd. Really, really love these companies. Proud to call them sponsors. You're going to be hearing more about them later. But for now, on with the show. I think that in order for Bitcoin to get to 100K, we needed institutional money. We need that type of subscription by these other entities that say, look, Bitcoin is a legitimate asset class. This market cycle, the asset class as a whole, should reach approximately 10 trillion. All right. What's going on, everyone? Uh, welcome to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Benjamin Cohen, uh, also known as Into the Cryptoverse. What's going on, Ben? Not too much. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. You got a lot of ground to cover today. You actually put together a great deck. Uh, so I actually want to kind of segment this conversation, actually walk through some of the charts that you put together for this presentation. And then uh, I'm curious, guys, so I've got like a bunch of just questions to ask you about different narratives and stuff that we're seeing. Um, let me switch over here and start with some of these charts. Uh, title that we've got here is Crypto Market Cap and, time, uh, and Trend Line. Uh, so why don't you just describe uh, what's going on in this chart? Yeah, I mean, so this chart basically is just the, it's the entire cryptocurrency asset class, not just Bitcoin. It looks like Bitcoin, right? But it, uh, it's mm. actually the, the market capitalization of the entire asset class. Like if you look on the left, we're currently, you know, at two and a half trillion, somewhere in that area for the entire asset class. And, and the whole idea is that, you know, you're going to see some type of like diminishing returns over the long, over the long haul. And one way to, you know, encapsulate that trend is using logarithmic regression where, you know, where the, the most insane moves happen early on, uh, doesn't mean you can't have great moves later. It just means they're going to be slightly diminished in terms of their ROI. And, and that's sort of what this, what these logarithmic regression trend line more or less in, encapsulates. And, and the whole idea is that, look, I mean, we're, we're going to go through periods of overvaluation and undervaluation. We're going to have bull markets and bear markets. And, and the whole idea is to figure out, well, how far overvalued can we get before we, you know, before we ultimately come back down to earth? And, you know, when, when I look at this chart, what I think of is I, I think it looks like we have a long way to go. You can see that if we were to go to the, up, up, you know, the, the higher green, green line, which we've hit three times in the past, um, you know, I mean, we should be able to go several trillion higher than we currently are today. And I, I generally think that this market cycle, the asset class as a whole, should reach approximately 10 trillion, plus or minus a few trillion. I, I've often said 7 to 13 trillion is, is generally where I think it's headed. But you should note that there's not really a good chance we're going to hit 10 trillion this year, right? It would have to, we'd have to just go straight up. Um, right which is probably not going to happen going into the next, you know, the final 30 days of the year or so. So that's generally, you know, that's generally the idea of this chart. You have the fair value logarithmic regression trend line, and then you have sort of the bear markets where we're below the line, the, the mania phases, the bull markets when we're above the line, and then sometimes we sort of just track the fair value for a while. Yeah. And Ben, just from my own nerdy curiosity here, you know, when you're looking at this red line here, that's the fair value. How do you arrive at, at that red line? How do you determine what the fair value is? So in this one, it's sort of a, an interesting thing. Like this one, I'm, I'm basically minimizing the lo I'm minimizing the summations of the logarithmic difference between the fair value and the and the actual market capitalization. So it's an iterative it's an iterative process um, that I mean it, it's it's somewhat complicated to solve, but I, I basically just resolve it every month, and and then this is what you get. Mm, very interesting. So another pretty famous uh, chart that a lot of folks refer to in this space is Plan B's stock to flow 
um, ratio. So that's specifically looking at Bitcoin. Uh, stock to flow is a concept that I'm pretty sure he borrowed from commodities, but still relatively applies. Um, are those, I mean, I guess these charts look relatively similar, but there are some key differences. So would you, you know, if you were trying to look at um, just where we are in the cycle, um, whether or not assets are priced fairly or not, how would you kind of use those two charts in tandem with one another? Are they related here? Are they different sorts of concepts? Uh, how do you match those two ideas up? I think there's, it's actually pretty similar. Yeah. I mean, and the stock to flow, that stuff goes back to, you know, I mean, it goes back decades, right? Well before Bitcoin. Um mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that they can actually be in agreement. Generally speaking, the stock to flow model is basically predicting average prices for Bitcoin. Not, it's not looking at market cycle peaks or anything like that. It's looking at just what the average price of Bitcoin should be during like a four year window between one having and another. Um, you know, I, I know that his, his current model, the stock to flow model, has the average price for Bitcoin to be $100,000 for this market cycle. Uh, clearly... Clearly, you know, my thesis on these cycles are that the cycles lengthen, right? I don't, I don't think we have to have a market cycle peak in, in 2021. Um, but I mean, even, even when you think about like the stock to flow model, if, if we have any hopes of having an average price for Bitcoin of 100,000 between the last halving and this halving, we have to go well past 2021 in terms of the in terms of putting in higher prices. Because if we, you know, if we, if we just put in a market cycle peak in 2021, I mean, unless we just shoot up to $300,000 in the next 30 days, it's going to be mathematically impossible for us to have a, a, an average price of Bitcoin of $100,000 without having a lengthened cycle. So you know, I think that you can sort of see how they could ultimately both end up being true. Um, but I, I think that he's sort of given like, you know, some guidance on, on basically saying that, you know, for the stock to flow model to really pan out, it has to be at at least $100,000 by Christmas. Um, right. Yeah. I, I don't really necessarily think that it has to be at 100K. And I mean, I, you know, if we were to sit down and do the math, you could clearly come up with a solution that would put the average price of Bitcoin at 100K between, say, 2020 and 2024, even if it's not at 100K by Christmas. Right. I mean, it's still mathematically possible if it goes to 150K, 200K and then sits there for a while. It's certainly possible. Now, personally, though, I would say that an average price of 100K for these four years is probably a little bit on the high side, considering mm -hmm. we've spent the last, you know, um, since May of 2020, we've spent all this time well below $100,000. So I don't even know what the average price is for the last 18 months or whatever, but you know, maybe somewhere between, you know, 30, $40,000 or something. Yeah. I mean, it's just going to be a lot of work for us to get to an average price of a hundred K not saying it's not possible, but you can sort of see how both models could ultimately, you know, pan out to both being true this cycle. If we in fact have a lengthened cycle, which is what I think. And, and then ultimately the average price, maybe not getting quite to 100K, but it could get a lot closer than it currently is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just, you know, one other sort of technical question on this chart, these yellow lines um, that we're seeing here in between the, the regression band, um, is, is that just basically the idea that valuation kind of fluctuates uh, within the band? Or is this like sort of a prediction? Uh, like it looks like if I were just to just look at the band here, it looks like you actually have us topping out purely in terms of valuation, I guess, in it uh, looks like around January of 2023. Um, is that more of like a guideline type thing or is that more a, yeah. a prediction? That it's yeah. more or less a guideline of, of thinking about lengthening cycles and diminishing returns, right? I mean, you look mm -hmm. at each cycle, you can see the first one happened relatively quickly. The second one took place over approximately two and a half years. The third one took place over approximately four years. So then I was sort of just speculating that, all right, well, look, this one's probably going to continue 
going on for a while, you know, and, and there's no reason that we have to end this month or, or I mean, you know, there's, there's been all sorts of predictions, right? Everyone's got their own prediction, whether they thought April was the peak, whether they thought September was the peak, October, November, December, there's going to be people saying January is the peak. Look, I, you know, the way I look at it is I, I think we're going to keep going for a while. And, and the point is to say, you know, I don't know exactly when we're going to get, get to that higher overvaluation, you know, that upper trend line. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen. The point is, is that when it does happen, the risk at the time is going to be relatively high um, right. in terms of coming into the market at that point. And I, I think once we get to those valuations, we probably will have a phase where we where we have to come down to a while. But I would argue that the the, the, the prices that we likely come back down to are, are probably somewhere around where we currently are for, for you know, assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that I that I heard you say that really resonated with me as well is that uh, you know you expect some more time uh, in the current cycle, but uh, you would actually be nervous, you know, if you saw Bitcoin shoot up to 150k or something by December. Uh, walk me through why that is. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of these a lot of these price movements all about whether it's sustainable or not. Like, you know, can we is a, is a trend sustainable if we go up to 150k next month? I don't think so. Like, I, I think there's just going to be too many, too much selling pressure, including from myself, to be completely honest. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, like I say, like I'm a Bitcoin bull, but I have a couple, I have a couple panda bears next to me to keep me in check. You know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and say it's going to go up forever because I don't think it will. But it will generally trend up with time. You know, we will we will have bearish phases, but we're still going to likely continue higher. And I, I mean, I ultimately do think Bitcoin will hit a million dollars. It's not going to do it this cycle, though. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think that, look, I, I think that if it goes up that quickly, right, if it goes to 150K in, say, the next 30 days, we're basically going to be looking at an extension from the 20-week moving average of over 100%. That's basically where we were at the local top in, in April and May, where we were so far extended. Anytime we get that far extended, we, we have to go down for a while. We typically, if mm. history, if history is any indication, it's not something I like, right? I don't, I don't really necessarily like that that's the case, but it was back in April. I, I said, look guys, we, we're too far extended. We need to go down for a little while. Uh, three to six months is probably what it's going to take. And if that's the problem with getting too far extended. So if we get too far extended too quickly, then what's going to happen is the selling pressure is just not going to be offset by any type of new demand. And we have to go down for a while. But if it's just a slower move up, right? I mean, like, think about the last six months. I mean, it's been, a, a, or the last five months or so, it's been a relatively slow move up. I mean, not that slow. I mean, maybe slow for crypto, but, you know, 29K and then to 53K and then back down to 39K and then up to 69K and then back down to 53K. You know, it's just sort of this slow process of higher lows and higher highs. We're not going parabolic, right? It's just an uptrend. We're not, we're not parabolic yet. If we go to 150K next month, then, then at that point, I would say, look, guys, it, it's too risky. You know, it, it just this can't be sustained in the short term. I temporarily become the bad guy because no one wants to hear it, right? But, but then historically, we do end up coming back down, and then eventually we'll work our way back up and, and then take out that one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, uh, you know, something that I've heard you talk about a lot, and it, I, I really agree with it as well, is this idea of kind of lengthening cycles in general. So we're looking at a graph or at a chart here of ROI versus the days from the bottom, I guess, of various cycles. And you got cycle one, cycle two, cycle three, and cycle four. If you're an average or an avid listener of On the Margin, this is going to be the third time that you're looking at this chart. <laughs> Sorry, Ben, I jacked it from you. It was that good. You did get credit. <laughs> but um, walk, walk me through um, kind of what the thought process was for creating this chart and what your thoughts are just about cycles uh, in general in our space. 
Yeah, so I think Bitcoin, it goes to these sort of market cycles where every cycle we speculate on something a little bit different. You know, in 2011, it was, it was this new novel, con this new, this novel concept, you know, of, of Bitcoin. And obviously through the years, it became the idea that, all right, it's going to be the future peer-to-peer -peer currency. And then in 2017, we were like, all right, maybe it's just a store of value, you know. Um, and then people were also speculating on the ICO craze for Ethereum and whatnot. But, but even then, you know, every cycle, there's more to speculate on than the last cycle, right? I mean, like two cycles ago, we didn't even have Ethereum. You know, Ethereum right. wasn't, wasn't even around until 2015. So the 2013 cycle, relatively short. The next cycle, it took a while. I mean, it took longer. There's a lot more people coming into the space. There was more to speculate on. Now, 99% of those ICOs ended up being scams, right? And, and I, I think that, you know, the people realized this. And then, and then we, were, we, we could no longer support these, the, the crazy valuations back then, we had to go down for a while, we had to have a, a bear market. But today, it's different. I mean, it, it's not different in the sense that this time is different, right? It's just, it's, it's more of the same. There's more to speculate on this cycle, right? You, you don't just have worthless, worthless ICOs, you have DeFi. DeFi is a huge space. You have NFTs. Uh, you know, you have artists, these famous artists that are getting their own fans into the space because they're launching their own NFTs. You have tons mm -hmm. of institutional demand for the first time. I mean, Tesla bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. MicroStrategy bought, and they announced they bought some today. Or at least I don't know if they bought it today or not, but they, they bought it sometime recently and they announced it on Twitter today. So, you know, every cycle, you have more and more to speculate on, right? Mm. And, and you have more and more people. And it seems like, you know, okay, the cycle is going to keep going on longer. But we also recognize, too, that that doesn't mean that you're going to outperform the last cycle because we do, unfortunately, see diminishing returns and that it takes exponentially more volume to continue moving the, you know, the market cap another 10x, right? Like we can't. And that's why people love betting on micro caps occasionally because they can they can much. It's a lot easier for, for a micro cap to go up 10x than it is for Bitcoin to go up 10x. So the reason I came up with this chart was to basically say, you know what, guys, look, this, the data suggests the, the cycles lengthen as you measure them from market cycle bottom. Now, technically, I should say, as measured from this chart, we have not had a lengthened cycle yet. You, if you look at the purple line, we've gone out further than cycle three, but the all-time high at 69K actually occurred within about one or two days of the last cycle. So now you have all these people speculating, well, you know, is the cycle over, right? Is 69K the top? I would argue that's not. I don't, I don't think 60, 69K is the market cycle top. I think we have a ways to go. I think if you look at the chart, you would expect lengthening cycles to play out uh, and diminishing returns. In fact, right? You can see diminishing returns on lengthening cycles are just the name of the game. You might say that we've uh, unofficially lengthened the cycle. That's, that's what right? I would say. I would say it's, it's only official once we put in a new all-time high. That's when we can, we can say, all right, looks like the cycle's going to lengthen. I don't even think we've really, you know, I, I think we're going to have another leg to the cycle. Until then, I don't even think we've started it yet. I mean, Bitcoin still is, I mean, it's been a relatively boring year if you think about it for Bitcoin, not for, yeah. not for Ethereum, not for a lot of altcoins. For Bitcoin, it's been relatively boring so far. We, we started the year on 28, 29K. Right now, we're only up 2X from that, right? I mean, Ethereum started the year at $700 or so, and now it's over $4,000. So it's been a relatively uneventful year for Bitcoin. I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping there's more in store uh, as we head into the end of this year and, and 2022. Yeah. So we had uh, Avi Fellman, um, who's a portfolio manager at Block Tower uh, on the podcast last week. Um, and he kind of made the case for this being the last um, of these classic 
crypto cycles that we might be in. He was kind of looking at this exact same chart and saying, objects to the idea of having cycles at all. Um, and one idea that's gaining some traction is that while obviously there are going to be bear markets uh, moving forward, maybe what we have is something that looks like a sector-specific bear markets, right? So in the past, um, there's really only been Bitcoin, I would argue. Like, I think everything in the space is still pretty much indexed to some degree to the price of Bitcoin. But previously, it really was like everything was very much indexed to the price of Bitcoin. Now, you could make the the argument that while we don't have diverse, uh, huge diversity in terms of sectors, we definitely do have different sectors, right? We've got Bitcoin, we've got ETH, which seem very correlated, like maybe a high beta Bitcoin, but it still does perform differently. Um, every now and again, we have NFTs, uh, we have DeFi, uh, we have this emerging area of gaming. Um, so I'm curious to get like, you know, one narrative goes, well, well, maybe we never see a full crypto, you know, 80% bear market again. And what we really get is kind of staggered bear markets in these different sectors. Do you have an opinion on that? I think it's certainly possible. I mean, I think, you know, NFTs are a completely different game to, to some degree. You know, they've already had a couple of shorter, you know, bursts and then bear cycles and, and they're kind of going on their own own discovery mode. Uh, but mm. again, yeah, at some point, everything is somewhat tied, to, you know, to, to Bitcoin. And if you think back to May, when, when Bitcoin was dropping, it was, you know, most of the asset class was, was sort of experiencing a pullback. You know, if you go to the next chart, actually, it might actually help explain um, uh, the, you know, what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, that chart. So that chart is the same chart that you just showed, but it's on a linear scale. Mm. And, you know, one of the issues, <laughs> I think, yeah, one of the issues, one of the issues with market cycles are, are that they're somewhat ambiguous as to when they start, right? And, and you know, you, you could argue that, you know, some people say that 2013 is really two cycles, right, rather than a double peak cycle. Um, but here's my thinking on it. I, I think that over time, the, the crypto space, at, at least for, for Bitcoin specifically, the, the cycles will become harder and harder to discern from one another. But I think it's probably because, you know, if, if, you, if you keep thinking about it, like, if the cycle theoretically, like if the cycles technically lengthen, you know, and, and the first one was like a year or less than a year, the second one was two and a half years, the third one was four years, you know, if this one ends up being five years or something, I don't even, I don't know, right? But whatever it ends up being, you have to think that, well, if the next one is, you know, six years or something, at some point it becomes somewhat irrelevant, right? It's just like, uh, okay, well, right. you know, we expect the market to generally trend up for the next decade, right? You know, are we going to call that a, a, you know, an entire cycle or, or what? But if you look at this chart, what you notice is that everything we've experienced for Bitcoin, this market cycle, is that little purple line that's on, on the linear scale is barely off the x-axis compared to the other, other market cycles. So what, mm -hmm. I, what, what I think is that, look, eventually the returns are going to be diminished to the extent that, look, I mean, it's going to become a little bit more, it's going to become more and more ambiguous every single cycle as to you know, where, where it starts, where it stops. And it's going to just become ultimately like traditional markets, right? And we're, I mean, we're, we're seeing mm -hmm. Bitcoin become more introduced or integrated into traditional markets, right? We have uh, futures ETFs. Eventually, we'll likely have spot ETFs. Um, and, and, you know, the, 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 that's just the way it's going to ha more than likely happen is you're just going to see these diminishing returns. I, I would argue or I would say that no, there's, no, there's no need that Bitcoin has to go down 80% again. One of the nice things, theoretically speaking, about diminishing returns is that Hey, if we don't go up as high, then maybe we don't have to drop as bad, you know. Um, so, right. I mean, I certainly think that we're 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 going to have sixty and seventy percent drops. I mean, we just had a fifty-five percent drop this year, so we know it's possible. Um, but do we have to go down eighty-five percent again? I don't think it's necessary that we go down eighty-five percent again. 
Uh, but we, we could certainly see like, you know, 60% drops and 70% drops. Um, you know, to go to 85, 90% would be would be pretty brutal, I think, for, for Bitcoin at, at this phase. I don't I don't I don't see you know ninety percent drops by Bitcoin. Not not at any time anytime soon. Howdy everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. You know, one thing that folks say as well, uh, especially when you look at an asset like Bitcoin, right, you kind of talked about one of the reasons why you saw these insane, this insane ROI for earlier cycles is that just a much smaller asset class, much less liquidity. So each incremental dollar that came into the space moved, um, you know, the market cap that much higher. And, you know, Bitcoin is much, much larger than it was back in 2011, 2013. 2017 all right so there's this kind of argument that what you need right now is actually institutions to kind of come in and and that we, we need that much capital to kind of move crypto or uh, bitcoin up in a significant way and you know that the other side of that narrative is that well institutions aren't like retail they don't panic they have targets they'll buy dips more aggressively they'll hold for longer periods of time so i guess in a way you know that's might be like the fundamental change in buyer also supports what you're kind of seeing, you know, everything that you just sort of described, right, in terms of, um, you know, diminished returns over time, but hopefully less downside volatility as well. Do you subscribe to that narrative that you when you have a very different, more institutionally focused buyer, that also translates differences in price action? I, I think that in order for Bitcoin to get to 100k, we needed institutional money, we need that type of, um, you know, subscription by these other entities that say, look, Bitcoin is a legitimate asset class, if it's just retail, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it couldn't ever get to 100 grand if it's just retail, but it would certainly take a lot longer than if you have, you know, these these major entities just buying billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin OTC. I would argue that diminishing returns is actually quite healthy at the end of the day because everyone likes to look at these charts and say, oh, my God, 700 times, uh, you know, a 700x, right, or whatever return on investment. You know, I, I'm just going to say, you know, volatility is unpleasant actually. Uh, it doesn't suit most people. Uh, I, I don't really think that this space is ever going to get the global adoption that we all want, uh, you know, at, at the even the current rate of volatility, right? So I, I think you need to surrender some of that upside for a longer, slower, but more consistent upward grind if you want people to participate in this space in a long way, you know, and maybe that doesn't mean you get your thousand X's. But uh, overall, I think it's I, I would argue that it's the natural evolution uh, this space, not just for fundamental reasons um, and kind of markets generated reasons, but 
it just kind of has to happen that way if we want it to be successful overall. Um, cause stomaching volatility kind of, kind of sucks for the vast majority yeah. of people. Yeah. I mean, look at the, look at cycle one. I mean, everyone looks at the left side of it when it goes up, but if you were living on the right side of it, as it went down, it certainly wasn't mm-hmm. much fun. It was not, man. It was absolutely not. Um, I've got, uh, so this is actually, uh, it, this looks like something pretty similar here. So you're charting out days since the halving. Um, walk me through, why would folks, uh, why is this more useful or maybe a different way of, of looking at things, uh, measuring from the halving as opposed to from the bottom of the previous cycle? So I, I always prefer measuring it from the market cycle bottom. Um, mm-hmm. One reason I don't like measuring it from the halving is because like it's somewhat an arbitrary, I mean, it's not entirely arbitrary, right? I mean, like the halving does have an important role in Bitcoin, right? We know that it does um, when the minor rewards are are cut in half. But one issue is that, you know, if you measure the ROI from that point, well, you know, I mean, Bitcoin pumps like two or three X right before the halving. So then if you if you normalize it from the halving, then it's like you're already kind of missing out on on what it did just a few months before. Uh, we right. normalize it to here. But I, I think that the reason why people like to, to follow it is because it's a big event for Bitcoin. And historically speaking, we, we see Bitcoin do well after the halving. I mean, you know, I mean, it doesn't always do immediately well. Cycle one basically just went straight up after the halving. Cycle two, it actually went down first. You know, we went mm. down for about 100 days. And it was like three months where we were going down. Um, and I remember back then, too, that, you know, a lot of people were thinking, like, what's going on? Like, we, why are we not... Why are we not going up? Um, mm. And I mean, I think at that phase too, it was somewhat, the whole idea of cycles was a little bit, uh, you know, the, the discussions weren't as, as I would say, evolved as they are today. Because at that point, you know, I mean, we had gone to like $1,300. We, you know, we crashed back down to like 150 bucks or something. It's after the halving. It's three months after the halving. We're still not doing anything. It's like, what's going on? Um, then the third cycle, we ended up taking off eventually. And then of course the third cycle uh, took off as well. I mean, you can see we sort of hugged the having or hugged the ROI that we started with at the having for a little while, and then we ultimately started trading higher. I think the people, I think people just like to, to to measure it from the having because it's just this big event in crypto. Um, and if if history is any indication, then you know the market tends to do quite well following the having. So I think that's the reason why why people like to follow it. Yeah. Well, if I were to present maybe the steel man argument for why, uh, you know, people use the halvening as this kind of anchoring, uh, it's just because, you know, the halvening obviously cuts in half the supply of new Bitcoin that's being issued. So generally when there's like a supply shock, right, there's the whole stock to flow, uh, you know, supply and demand uh, pricing version of things, um, then that tends to spike Bitcoin. And then because everything is kind of indexed to Bitcoin, then it tends to kind of send everything everything off. Um, I think one thing, and, and I know you're a proponent for cycles looking different, uh, and, and this is something people love to say, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, oh, it's different this time, uh, four most dangerous words in finance. Right. But they do change. <laughs> like, they, right. like, look around, things do get different. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about sector diversification um, in general being different, but I think another, like, pretty big change that might actually reduce the impact that the happening has, at least on market cycles, uh, is stable coins. The rise of stable coins because previously uh one of the most important value propositions of bitcoin was uh liquidity right it was that those were the highest liquidity pairs bitcoin versus eth or bitcoin versus everything else now you know people kind of move into stables a lot of the time mm-hmm. before they move into something like bitcoin so do you view you know the introduction of stable coins as potentially lessening the impact um, of the happening or what, what are your kind of thoughts there i don't know that it necessarily lessens it i mean i, I think that 
I, I mean, I like stable coins to be completely honest because it provides mm -hmm. an easy off ramp to crypto, or for say like a more volatile asset like Bitcoin, Ethereum, or other altcoins, and then you can just quickly send them to some decentralized, or you can send them to your wallet and then you know go to some decentralized exchange and you just start earning interest on your stable coins while you figure out what you're gonna do. You know, like are you gonna are you gonna buy back in? What are you gonna do? I like stable coins in that sense. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think that they necessarily lessen the impact. I think that the impact is just lessened by a naturally evolving market uh, where you, you're just going to have diminishing returns. Um, I, I think that the biggest, you know, obviously one of the things I've been thinking about recently is just the risk, the regulatory risk on stable coins. Um, which I mean, that's a different topic, but uh, that's something I hope they get worked out relatively soon because you know, depending on what what you know they say around stable coins and. And, and whatnot there is, is going to significantly impact the market, I think. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I think that the next bear market is probably going to revolve some around regulatory FUD. You know, I think a lot, there's going to be a lot of regula regulatory FUD. But I don't, I don't really think stable coins are, are necessarily going to to lessen anything. Um, I think that, I think that's just the, what happens in a, in, a, in a maturing market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you will, just... Uh speculate with me uh, for a second here. Uh, sure. What do you think, uh, what's the most likely outcome for you? Do you think this next bear market uh, kind of looks like? Because I think a lot of folks in this space are kind of scarred with this side. You know, it's like 80% drawdowns. And so I, I'm, you know, I'm a class of 2017, right? So I only experienced the 2018, 2019 bear market. And that to me felt bleak, man. It was right. like, yeah. there was not much love. It was kind of like maybe Bitcoin's the only thing that really makes it. And I've actually heard people that have been around for longer say that bear market was nothing compared to 2014, 2015. So, you know, if you had to, you know, take a guess, uh, maybe it's regulatory stuff that causes it, whatever it is, but what does this next bear market look like? How similar is it to previous ones that we've gone through? How might it be different? I think it depends on how high we go. You know, I mean, if Bitcoin sort of just slowly grinds up, there's no reason we have to go have an 80% drop, right? It's the, the right. reason why we have those major drops is because we go, we go up too quickly and, and, and retail FOMOs in and, like, I just want to tell people to stop, right? Like, just stop. Like, you don't have to be the guy. You know, you have 10 years to buy Bitcoin below 100K. There's no reason why you need to be the first guy to buy it at 120K or something. Like, um, so, I, I, you know, I look at it and say, look, guys, like, the market is relatively healthy. I think the market's relatively healthy right now. Um, if we go up too quickly, as we discussed earlier, then we're likely going to come back down. Now, I think that people are going to look to things like regulation. I, I think that's going to be the biggest thing. I mean, I, it, governments banning Bitcoin is, is, is something that it's, it's pretty hard to actually enforce completely, you know. Right. Um, banning things doesn't really necessarily do anything except make people want it more. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that I, I don't think the United States is going to ban Bitcoin or anything. But I do think there's going to be a lot of regulation. Uh, specifically around, you know, like other, maybe not Bitcoin so much, but um, like the DeFi space, um, right. you know, any, even NFTs, a, a lot of, we just don't, right. we don't have this regulatory clarity right now. And, and we don't even have a spot ETF for Bitcoin, right? I mean, so th there's going to be a lot of regulation thought. I think it's what's going to sort of drive the next, the next bear market. I do think we will have a bear market again. Um, I don't think it, 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 it will be as bad as, as say, 2014, um, but I, I still think there's going to be a lot of drawdown, uh, and that drawdown will happen 
if we have a major move to the upside, right? Right. That's right. the thing. Like, I mean, a lot of a lot of people like to chase cloud and say, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. It's going to go by to a certain price on this date. The problem is that most of those predictions end up not standing the test of time for the most part, right? Most people get things wrong. Um, and really, I think the better way to do it is just a, lot, a bunch of if-then statements, right? Like if Bitcoin goes parabolic, then you have to be ready for the downside risk. It's basically mm -hmm. what happened last November, December, January, February, March, and April. It's like, look, Bitcoin went parabolic. You have to be ready for the downside risk. So I'm sitting here thinking, all right, if Bitcoin goes parabolic, then whenever that does happen, I'm going to be you know, looking to, to, to take some profits. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that right now, again, the, the market looks relatively healthy, but the, the drawdown will likely be if we go up too quickly where we can no longer sustain it. Because if you think about it, the next time we have a parabolic rally, not only are you going to have the people that bought at the bear market bottom wanting to sell, because there's a lot of people that bought Bitcoin like 4K, 5K, 6K, and they're just holding out for 100K or 150K, 200K, whatever. You're going to have these guys selling. You're also going to have the, the crypto class of 2021 probably selling too. That they're going to be happy to dump For some sure. of it. Yeah, because I mean a lot of people came in, you know, in April. By the way, the, I, I would argue that the crypto class of 2021, they're lucky. You know, if they had if, if they had come in in 2017, they would have had three wait three years to see a new all time high. Um, if they bought the 64k top in in April, they only had to wait like six months, um, yeah. which is not nearly as bad. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're going to have those guys selling. You're going to have the guys who bought at the market cycle bottom selling. And then there's just not going to be enough. There, there's just not going to be enough new people in the space to offset the selling from all the guys who got in at like 3K, 4K, and all the guys who got in at 50K, 60K. Eventually, the market just can no longer bear it if we go up too quickly. If it's a slow grind up, I'm happy to keep hitting. You know, let's keep, you know, time is on our side, right? We're going to keep trending higher. But uh, the yeah. minute it goes up too quickly, we're too far gone. Ben, what are your thoughts uh, kind of on on-chain analytics? Uh, you know, because I see a lot of charts from guys like uh, Dylan LeClaire or Will Clemente. And, you know, they, they've got kind of these things about, um, you know, like realized profits, uh, stuff like that, um, the amount of long-term holders. I will say, I feel like every single tweet that I see is uh, we're in an accumulation phase, you know, or <laughs> whales are buying. Um, yeah. uh, so, you know, I, I don't really know how to interpret that. I mean, how useful do you think uh, on-chain data is you use it as one of a set of tools or like, what do you think about it? It shouldn't be the end-all be-all, right? Like, I, I think it's, it's useful in terms of trying to figure out, like, what are people doing? Are you seeing, are you seeing wells accumulate? Are you, like, who are you seeing selling? I mean, you have to consider, too, that if, if someone is buying, like, you know, sometimes they'll say this amount of Bitcoin was, was just bought. Well, someone mm. sold, someone sold it, you know? Um, so you have to, you have to look at it right. and, and they have a way of framing things, right? Like if someone, if someone is, is sending crypto off the exchange, they'll say, mm. all right, you know, someone just spent like, you know, just sent 10,000 Bitcoins, to, you know, it's cold storage. Uh, but if someone sends Bitcoin to an exchange, the the narrative is different then they'll just say oh someone sent a hundred million dollars worth of bitcoin for a dollar right rather than saying oh they sent it to sell to you um so look i, I think that it does have value though i don't want to i don't want to minimize that i think the problem is is that a lot of people are just biased right a lot of people are biased and they they want to they want to find a reason that it, it's going to do what they want it to do okay because mm -hmm. back in april right back in april I don't remember any of these on-chain guys saying that it was going to go down, right? They were saying that they, they were saying that 50k was the floor, <laughs> um, that we'd never go below 50k again, and that we were just going to keep trending higher. Um, I also think it's too, it's true though. If you go back and look at April and May, there was a lot of Bitcoin being sent to exchanges. On, on you know, you can use on-chain data to show that there was a lot of inflows 
to mm. exchanges rather than outflows, but they just weren't talking about it, right? They weren't talking about it back then. So I, I think part of it is you just have to have the conviction to, you know, to, to be unbiased on it. So I think it's a useful tool. Um, I do. I, I, I typically will, you know, I'll check in on it about once a week or so, like, you know, where I do kind of a deep dive to see what's going on. Um, but should it be the only thing you use? No. And one of the reasons is because it, it can't capture everything, right? There's limitations to it. A lot of people just keep their crypto on exchanges. You know, a lot of people do. And so you're not going to see any on-chain movements. You know, it's just going to be like they have, they might have a few million dollars worth of Bitcoin or some of these institutions might have a few hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin somewhere uh, that they could just sell in some custodial wallet or something. They don't, they might not have to, you know, move it on-chain where where people are going to see it. So there are limitations to it. And it also doesn't, it can never, it can never really in, in uh, capture all the all like all these crazy liquidation events, right? Where everyone's short or everyone's long, and then you just have this cascading liquid liquidation event. So I, I think it's probably better to get an idea on long term movements, not necessarily short term movements. But even then, even traditional TA is kind of hit or miss on on short term movements. So um, I think it should be one tool in a set of a lot of tools that you should use. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective on, let's say, let's take one of those scenarios that you just outlined. Let's say Bitcoin really rips higher. One thing that I've noticed about Bitcoin in general is that it, you know, people look at Bitcoin dominance, but, you know, my overall observation is like when Bitcoin rips high, uh, there's there's a rotation back from like alts usually into Bitcoin because Bitcoin has this history of just absolutely running away from people, right? right? There are these insane runs that are, I think, just burned into the psychology of folks that have been in this market for a little time. So it almost just like completely sucks up um, all of the liquidity uh, in the space. So like, let's say there was uh, kind of a scenario where Bitcoin really does, like, let's game out some of these different scenarios that we see, right? So let's say scenario one, Bitcoin like really runs away. Um, you know, how does the market kind of look in that scenario to you? Do you think it's like we get, I don't know, maybe till Q1 or something like that, most liquidity moves to Bitcoin and then there's a big dump? Or how does that, you know, one potential possible future look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that we do know when Bitcoin, when Bitcoin rips, it leaves the rest of the market behind, more or less, right? Bitcoin dominance mm -hmm. shoots up. I think for us to see, you know, things like $10,000 ETH and whatnot, yeah, we have to have another Bitcoin move, right? We can't just sit here between 50K, 60K, 65K. We can't just sit here forever uh, and expect these other cryptocurrencies to just keep trending higher without Bitcoin actually putting in new all-time highs. You know, I, I think that in terms of timing, um, I, I think, you know, I, I've said this since 2019 that I, I don't think we're going to have a peak in 2021, um, 2021 has just been really an accumulation year for Bitcoin, one could argue, between 30 and 60K for the most part. Could it peak in 2020, uh, 2022, like early 2022? Yeah, it's possible. I would argue that Q1 of 2022 is a lot more likely than Q4 of 2021. Mm. But I would also say, I would argue that Q2 is more likely than Q1. Um, mm. So I don't, I don't really see any reason that we have to go up immediately i would i'm somewhat selfish like i don't want us to go up immediately um yeah. I, mainly because like it's just kind of it's more fun in crypto to have a slow uptrend where people are generally happy and uh than to have like a year-long shakeout where everyone's just kind of like d depressed for a year and you have to convince people like this is actually the best time to buy even though it, it doesn't really seem like it is um we will have that phase again, though. I'm, 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 and, and the bear markets do have a way of kind of flushing out all the garbage, too, which is good. They do. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so there are some good things about the bear markets, for sure. And, and really, once you're in the bear market, like once you've already experienced the 80% decline, 
it's it feels pretty good from then on out because then you have this whole theoretical market cycle to look forward to like we were looking forward to back in 2019 i mean you said you were around for 2017 so you were mm-hmm. you were, you experienced 2018 you experienced 2019 you had the conviction to stick around and and because you thought the prices were going to go higher uh, so that was a pretty interesting time, you know, in, in 2019, as we were coming into, you know, the 2020s and expecting things to trend higher. Um, yeah, so I, I would basically say, look, it, it, whenever it runs, whenever Bitcoin runs, it's probably going to suck up liquidity, as you said. It's probably going to up from everything for, uh, you know, potentially for, for several months in a row, just like it did last time. You know, it started running in October, October, November, December, January, February. It was basically just outperforming everything, you know, for the most part. Um That'll probably happen again at some point. And after that, you'll, you'll see other things run, right? You'll see like altcoins continue to rally. Ethereum will continue to rally. And a lot of these cryptocurrencies will be dragged up with Bitcoin as well. When Bitcoin's rallying, they just probably won't be able to keep pace with Bitcoin. Now, Ethereum might. I mean, Ethereum's been acting pretty strong relative to what I thought it was going to do uh, at this phase. And I'm happy about that. I mean, but I, I do think that there is a, there's a phase coming. <laughs> I've been saying this for a while, right? Uh, but... <laughs> There will be a phase, right? I think this cycle, because I mean, I, I think the cycle lengthens, right? I think the cycle lengthens where right. Bitcoin will leave the rest of the market behind. And if you think about it, the people who, who sort of bought Bitcoin for the first time in 2021, they don't really know what we're talking about. They, you know, they keep hearing people say things like, well, when Bitcoin moves, it leaves everything else behind. I mean, they're like, well, what are you talking about? It's, you know, it's almost December and it's Bitcoin's only up 2x from January 1st of 2021. So I, I, I don't think we're at that phase yet, but look, whenever Bitcoin makes the run to like 100K, 200K, somewhere in that, in that ballpark, um, I do think it'll leave the, the rest of the market behind. But fortunately, you still typically have about a month after Bitcoin's peak where altcoins can still rally for a while before they have to come down to What's your thought process for why that is? Like, I just, so basically, I, I feel the same way too, right? That, uh, you know, as long as Bitcoin is kind of trading um, range bound or sideways or whatever, we're not going to see any real, you know, movement up in the rest of the market cap. Why do you think that is? I have a theory, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like Bitcoin is a much, it's a, it's a much less risky asset. Um, like if you calculate, if you do modern portfolio theory and calculate out your risk adjusted returns, Bitcoin is like the safest play. Uh, like for the risk you're taking, the reward, the return you're getting is really good for the risk you're taking. Obviously, the returns on other assets are can be better theoretically, but you're taking on a lot more risk. And 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 survival survival ship bias is a thing where you know you only look back at the altcoins that went up a thousand x, not the ten thousand right. altcoins that didn't go up a thousand x that you could have also just as easily bought back then that didn't do anything. That's way less fun though. Yeah. That's way less fun. I yeah. get it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think part of the thing too is like, you know, a lot of people sort of ride Bitcoin and and then eventually everyone's sort of like rich in Bitcoin and then they just don't think it, it can move much further. Um, and it, you know, it, it becomes sort of this magic internet money to a lot of people, right? They have all this mm. money and, and it's sort of like not even a real thing for a lot of people. And then they just go blow it on altcoins. It's, it's, you know, the, the altcoin casino is a nice way to say it. You could use a little bit more alliteration if I wanted to on that. But, um, you know, you could uh, the altcoin casino, right, where, where people right. basically just take their profits from Bitcoin, throw them into altcoins. I would argue that you should probably take some of your Bitcoin profits and then just stick them in stable coins or something and not not risk everything you gain from the market cycle on Bitcoin on speculative alts. They may or may not do anything. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people just like to speculate and, and, and it can, you know, when you have all this money in the space, like everyone's portfolios are inflated like 3x, 4x, 5x in a relatively short period of time because Bitcoin just went up like a ton. Uh, yeah, like you just throw, you know, you throw even 50% of those gains at altcoins. 
market caps are a lot lower, and then they can run for a while. Um, so I think that's one of the one of the main reasons is is you just sort of have capital. One of the things too is you have a money ball, and you'll see this money ball float from like one layer one mm. to another layer one. Like we saw it on Cardano in late 2020 when there was all this speculate. I mean, it's, it's all been pure speculation, of course. Um, but then it, it was recently on Solana. Uh, Solana did really well, twenty dollars to two hundred something dollars in a relatively short period of time. Avalanche after that, right? I mean, like you just have this money ball going from one project to another. So, like, I have this theory right now. Uh, that most of the money, most of these projects that are going up, it's basically just because we're moving money from one project to another. Um, And we're not really, I don't think we actually have a ton of new retail. Like, I I feel like most of the people buying Bitcoin now were probably also buying Bitcoin three months ago and five months ago. I think we really need that push above 100K before we're really going to see a ton of new retail people come in. And then then that's just going to create more mania phases for a while. And then we're going to come back down. So I think it's like the shuffling of money from just, you know, various projects back and forth to each other. And then also people being rich in their magic internet money. Um, and right. it's kind of going crazy for a while. I completely agree with you. I, I feel like what ends up driving uh, mania bubbles in this space is some mix of like, it's almost like a mix of leverage slash money illusion. Because I feel like what ends up happening is, you know, Bitcoin and ETH go up. And then everyone feels very rich, and then they look for something to chuck money into. And in 2017, that was ICOs, right? So, every, so right. the Bitcoin and ETH goes up, right? Everyone feels wealthy. You denominate it in Bitcoin or ETH, uh, and then you chuck it into ICOs. Um, and then they had that forced selling dynamic in their treasury, right? EOS raised like $4 billion in Bitcoin. <laughs> then, they have real world, then they have real-world uh, expenses. They got to sell all that shit. Right. And that's what – you know, if you're looking for a reason, that's what kind of triggered the whole thing down. Now – my personal theory is that same dynamic is happening with NFTs. Bitcoin and ETH go up, mostly ETH. Uh, then people say, oh, yeah, this is only you, you hear these anecdotes, right? Like, oh, I've never paid $10,000 for uh, NFT, but like two ETH. Yeah, fuck it. Here you go. Boom. Right. Uh, right? So people like uh, they, they go into the ETH um, and now that's experiencing kind of a bear market. I, so I went to Lisbon, the breakpoint thing, uh, Solana. And one of the, you know, there's this trend that you're starting to hear about fractionalization of NFTs, using NFTs as collateral. And my personal theory is that if we get NFTs as collateral, that's the blow off top end of this bull market, because mm-hmm. that's basically a way to lever NFTs, which are like the most speculative, most illiquid part of this entire market. And that's just a way to add a false sense of liquidity to them. And that, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, a, it's actually an interesting theory. I mean, I, I think, too, to, to, to kind of go off what you're saying there, the idea of, of, of leveraging your NFTs um, also, just in general, have everyone having access to all this, de- all these DeFi lending platforms as well are probably going to can further contribute to it because every, you know, if you want a loan, it's not that hard to get one now. You don't actually have to go to a, a bank to get one, right? You just go to your go, go find some exchange, and as long right. as you provide the collateral, you'll get a loan. Um, I do think, yeah, I mean, you're probably right. I mean, a lot of times it's all this leverage that ends up wiping people out. Fortunately, so far this cycle, we've been able to recover from a lot of this stuff, but. Yeah, eventually, eventually, well, we're going to be too far gone. And, and with regards to NFTs, you know, a lot of people have been throwing their ETH into NFTs over the last couple of months. Um, I'm not as in tune with the NFT market as I as I probably should be. Um, but I do think, I, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of NFTs, not all of them, but I think a lot of them were actually bleeding against Ethereum over the last yep. month or two. And so you have these people that sort of put all this money into NFTs and they just said, all right, I'm just going to throw a few ETH into it, right? You know, what's, oh, who cares? Just a few ETH, you right. know? 
Um, and it becomes not, it's like not a tangible thing for people, right? Like they don't think about it in terms of real money. They just think about it as something they maybe bought at a hundred dollars and, and now they have a lot of them and now they can just sort of throw them around. Like it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, but then whenever, you know, when, when you, when you do that, now you have the opportunity cost of the NFTs bleeding against Ethereum, you know? Um, right. and so now they can't even get their, their, their original ETH back, uh, for a lot of these NFTs. So it's sort of like a lot of these NFTs, you know, are, are probably going to be looked at in the future as, as not that dissimilar from ICOs in some sense. Um, I, I mean, I do think there are a lot of great NFT projects. I, I think the NFT space is great, but I mean, you have like, I mean, they're everywhere, right? You have so many different projects coming out every single day right. that there's only so much, there's only so much money that can, you know, that can, they can, can, can spend millions and millions of dollars on all these different NFTs, uh, there will be some, I'm sure, that'll stand the test of time, right? I mean, I, I think there will be for sure. Uh, but, I mean, who are we kidding? Like, in 20 years, a lot of these NFTs that you see coming out today, no one's going to know what they are. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd takes a global bird's eye view of private markets and brings the companies with the greatest growth potential to you to invest in. One of my favorite quotes from Jim Bianco is when he says, I hate it when people tell me to invest like Warren Buffett. I wish I could invest like that guy. He sees all the best deals. Well, our crowd is addressing exactly that issue by bringing private companies to you when you can take advantage of them, i.e. when they're still early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many have benefited from the 46 uh, IPOs or otherwise sale exits that they've experienced on the platform. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash OTM. Again, that is ourcrowd.com slash OTM. If you take one thing away from this, be it that you should include OTM when you join our crowd. We'll see you soon. One thing I do want to get your opinion on is uh, this idea of the flipping, <laughs> the ETH and Bitcoin flipping. Uh, I know that that's a subject that gets like a lot of attention, right? You got the Bitcoin people being like, absolutely not, never. And the ETH people are like, it's inevitable. Uh, but I'd be curious to get your opinion. A, do you see that there's a good chance of this happening? B, do you think it's impactful in one way or another if it happens or not? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's definitely an interesting question because 
nothing's ever flipped Bitcoin, you know? And, and so the idea that something's going to flip it, people just sort of, they're, they're, I feel like your natural reaction is just kind of roll your eyes. Like, oh, not another one of these guys, you know? Um, but uh, you can't discount the fact that if you go back to the summer of 2017, Ethereum came within a few percent of flipping it, right? I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of people that maybe weren't around for the last cycle, they might think that it, the flipping refers to early 2018 when Ethereum went to $1,400 and Bitcoin was maybe trading for like 14K, 17K on the dead cap bounce. But actually, that's not it. Like, you know, the Ether Bitcoin valuation went to 0.15 in, in the summer of, of 2017. And that was before the blow off top. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is some validity to say that it could theoretically happen. I mean, if, if something comes to within a few percent of actually happening, you have to treat it like it's a, it's a possibility. Otherwise, I'd say it's somewhat irresponsible to say that it can't happen. I think that the way that it could happen depends on how long the cycle extends. Right. Um, if, if Bitcoin goes on a parabolic rally, uh, I, I mean, there's believe me, I, I'm fully in tune with market cycle theories and, and, and people have been calling for market cycle peaks in September, October, November. Now that now it's December right now, a lot of people are calling it for December. If, if the market cycle peak is in December, then I don't think Ethereum can flip Bitcoin this market cycle. We just don't have enough time. Right. I don't think right, we have enough right. time to. Uh, but look, if the cycle continues on and and let's say it extends out until you know, later in 2022 or 2023, if we're lucky, right, then it seems like it could happen. If you go look at the Ether Bitcoin ratio, the valuation, we're in an uptrend, right? We've been trending up for the last two years. So if you just simply dubiously extrapolate from, from the uptrend that we've been in and just say, look, I mean, if we continue this uptrend that's stood the test of time for the last two years, if it goes on for another 12 or 18 months, and, and we get another, you know, what I call them Ethereum tsunamis. It's basically after Bitcoin moves, Ethereum goes up, you know, like crazy. I mean, it goes up 2x in two weeks historically, right? 2018 was 700 to 1400 in two weeks. 2021 in April or in May, it was 2200 to 4400 in approximately two weeks. So yeah, like, I mean, if something like that happens, then I think it could flip, it could flip Bitcoin. But I don't think it, even if it did flip Bitcoin this cycle, I say I, it is a possibility, right? It is a possibility. I don't think it would sustain it during a bear market. Like, I think that, you know, it could become like a battle then, like between like which one is, is number one. I do think it would have some interesting ramifications on the space because, mm. um, you know, I think a lot of ways you get institutions to buy into Bitcoin is you say, oh, it's, it's, the, it's the biggest network. It's number one, right? It's been around for 10 years and it's still number one. How do you convince the same institutions if it's not number one, right? Like if it's number two, uh, or if it ends up being number three or number four, right? Like it, it, it would completely change the space, right? I think it would completely change the space. Mm -hmm. And, and then you really have to argue, well, like, I mean, it'd be like, what if silver flipped gold, you know, like it'd just be something that you couldn't really imagine happening. So if it did happen, um, it, it would be kind of, it would be really, really, really crazy. I mean, with that said, it's, it's certainly easy to look at the Ethereum Bitcoin valuation right now and, and say, well, I'll, if Ethereum were to go up, you know, like two X from its current price, and, if, and Bitcoin were to basically just stay humdrum at 58K, then we'd basically be looking at the flipping, right? I mean, it's just, it's, right. hard, it's hard to see Ethereum go up 2X without Bitcoin doing something as well. Uh, I agree. Um, yeah. And then also, as we, as, we, as we discussed earlier, you know, when Bitcoin goes parabolic, it usually leaves everything else behind. So then not only do you have to, whenever Bitcoin does go parabolic, there's a good chance that Ethereum is going to have to play catch up just to get to where it was before Bitcoin went parabolic. And then it has to, you know, then it has to go beyond that. I would say it's possible, but I, I think the only way it happens is if the cycle continues to lengthen for uh, many, many months to come. Yeah. Um, what do you think just past this cycle? Because I, I would actually argue um, 
that it's it's almost like inevitable that ETH has to do it eventually because just the pure market size that it's going for is so much larger than Bitcoin that I feel like ETH either has to fail kind of as a project or it has to flip in Bitcoin. Because, you know, if, if you just want to look at overall, like there is a demand, an existing demand for store value that's occupied by gold. And that's like maybe like a $9 trillion market. Let's just say it's a $10 trillion market overall. Well, the market cap for like global equities is like $110 trillion, right? So you can kind of, and, and you know, that's not too, you know, real estate's like $300 trillion or something like that globally. I don't know what, you know, it, it's kind of imperfect analogies here, but I, I kind of view ETH as being some mix of like uh, equities and uh, real estate in some weird way. But the market that it's going for is so much larger. So I kind of view it as inevitable that it eventually happens because people want stuff that feels productive, has a bigger market size. You know, if you talk to some of these TradFi guys, they're already saying, oh yeah, ETH is like FANG. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know? Have you I heard mean, that narrative? Yeah, no, I have. I mean, it, like if you if you had to ask me right now, like will Ethereum ever flip Bitcoin in the next 20 years or the next 10 years, I'd probably say yes. Like I'd, I, I would not take the other side of that bet and say that it can't do it, you know? Um, I, it's kind of like betting on, I mean, it's sort of like betting on like a tech stock or something, you know, like really early on or... Um, I, I sometimes think of them as like completely different assets, right? Like Bitcoin is yeah. is, is is this asset over here, and it's re- it's like really sound money, you know, as, as as Michael Saylor would describe, like it's it's digital property. And I expect Bitcoin to just slowly trend up with time, right? And and it's a different investment than Ethereum, but Ethereum has all these regulation risks. So you know, I, that's probably one of the biggest the, the probably one of the biggest milestones for Ethereum. You're you're talking about well, if it, if it's not going to flip Bitcoin it's probably because it means that it failed, right? Like if it, if it, if it fails and okay, yeah, like it's not going to flip Bitcoin. I would say probably the biggest hurdle for Ethereum is, is regulation risk. Like if we can get really? past, yeah, it, one of the, I mean, for sure. I mean, like if, if we can get past it, because I mean, even me is like right now, like I, you know, I run, um, you know, I run stake pools and whatnot. And, and I'm always wondering like, you know, like are, are, are they going to make it so that, you know, like I have to, I have to KYC anyone staking with my stake pools. Like, like these things that you know seem somewhat you know mundane to maybe the average retail investor. There are a lot of people that have to constantly worry about what are these regulations going to be. And if you if you force literally every decentralized exchange to you know to to do all these things, it's just going to make things a lot more a lot more complicated. I think, um, and and it's going to to stifle growth uh, for sure. And I mean you know we already we already talked about that with. Um, or we were already almost looking at that earlier this year uh, with, with some of those bills and whatnot that they had under they were they were going through the through the house and and just thinking like all right well if they if, if this language is left like this then you know how how is the how is the space going to keep growing at least within the United States without people constantly having to worry about these regulations and 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 if they're following them and if they're not and I mean that's that's one of the biggest things I'm concerned with not like not Im- immediately. But I, as I said before, I do think that regulation risk is going to be one of the biggest sources of FUD in the next bear market. Hmm. I do agree that regulation FUD is going to be – it might give us one more big buying opportunity. I have let – me, let me present a counter argument and say why actually the biggest regulatory risk is on Bitcoin even though it's not uh, – a lot of people don't think that right now. Sure. Um, you know, you've kind of heard over a long period of time people are always worried that uh, stuff is going Bitcoin is going to get banned specifically. I don't know what your macro view is or how much you follow uh, broader markets in general, but you know what we've got going on in terms of money printing and stuff. Uh, I think that 
interest rates, they can't afford to jack up interest rates because of the amount of debt that we have. You've got bonds, uh, you know, yields are already kind of historically low, uh, but they can't really let yields uh, rise too much because then the, the, the debt service costs would kind of bankrupt not only the US, but like a whole bunch of different countries. So you kind of got to punish bondholders. And basically the only outlet that you have is the US dollar in general. Right. If you go back to, you know, like the 1930s, there was executive order 6102 or whatever. They seized gold. It was different back then. There was a peg. I think gold was reserved to dollar at like 40% or something like that. But basically they were, people were losing faith in the dollar. Uh, the US wanted to demonetize to ease the effects of the, the depression and stuff like that. Uh, so they basically just made gold illegal because it was an escape valve and they basically punished the population. Um, there was a really interesting signpost that I don't think got enough attention which was Michael Saylor. You know, he used to get out and say, the dollar is going to be worthless. You know, your cost of cash is debasing at 25% a year, yada, yada. But he switched it about a month ago. And what now he says is actually Bitcoin will be successful and the dollar will be at the same time. You want to put your little, uh, you know, tinfoil hat on, talk about conspiracies. Why did he switch that? That was like a huge pivot in his thinking. And I've always kind of wondered, it's like, Dude, he's conducting a speculative attack on the U.S. dollar. That's like one way to look at what he's doing. Maybe he got a little tap on the oh, shoulder. I mean, yeah, it's possible. I mean, he's certainly biased, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I haven't actually noticed. Uh, that'll, that'll be interesting. I'll, I'll go see what he what he said about that because yeah, I know, man. check uh, it out. I had him on my channel, and he I mean, he spent the entire time. I mean, you know, with with the, with the initial with the initial narrative around it dropping. I mean, I don't. I mean, honestly, I don't think that. This is sort of like a weird, it's certainly not a popular opinion, and, and I don't know if you share it, but I, I don't think that the U.S. dollar is going to fail. Um, I don't either. If it no. if it did fail, like, I think that would, like, we're going to have a lot of other issues besides just crypto. Like, it's just going to be a big worldwide issue if the dollar fails, and I don't want that, I don't want that to happen at all. Like, I, I don't, I don't want that to happen, um, nor do I think it will happen. Uh, in fact, no. actually, the dollar this year, uh, you know, I mean, it's actually been doing relatively well. I mean, if you go look at like the, the DXY, right? If you if you look at that and the, like the its valuation against like a weighted basket of other uh, of not other cryptos, but other uh, other other currencies, the dollar has actually been doing relatively well over the last several weeks, and it's been breaking out to the upside. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if I don't know what happened there, like why he changed his his tune on that, but that's an interesting observation for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, if you think about the dollar in general, right, like you almost have there's like the IP of having the dollar, right, uh, the intellectual property. And then there's the way it gets distributed throughout mm-hmm. the world. I think there's a really likely scenario where the current system stays in place where like the U.S. is the IP holder of the dollar, but it just gets a tech upgrade in the form of stable coins basically. Yeah. I mean, I would love, I would love for us to, to, I mean, I think we need to transition to something more digital than, than what we totally. currently have. Um, for sure. I don't, I mean, I still, I still sort of don't understand why, why we carry cash around and, uh, especially pennies. Like, I mean, I feel like penny, like who, <laughs> what's the point, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's coming, right. It's only a matter of time before all this stuff is, is going to come. And it's interesting, you know, how, how, how many advances we've made in other, other fields and we're still using like, you know, cash money for a lot of purchases. Yeah. I think it's wild. Um, I know we're drawing close on our time here, I, but I want to get your opinion on a couple of alts. Uh, and, you know, I really do like this idea that you have, which is, you know, you don't want your alts to bleed against Bitcoin, especially. And I saw you comparing it to like Ethereum as well. Right. Um, and, you know, I've always heard that you see people denominate their profile in this. And you, I, I actually now listening to you talk, I really get why Bitcoin and ETH are the denominator or sort of the baseline uh, performance level that you'd want. Um, I've seen you put together a couple videos on like Avalanche. Uh, I've seen you talk about Cardano. Uh, I mean, 
whenever there's like a big sell-off, it does seem like there's one alt that like seems like steadily kind of chug up or outperform right. for like no reason. You know, recently it was Luna over Thanksgiving uh, that mm-hmm. seems to have done well for I have no idea why. Um, any particular, uh, you know, without maybe showing any product, but like how do, how do you kind of pick out different alts to chart? Uh, what's your framework for kind of looking at different things that might be interesting to you? I mean, I think obviously layer ones are are pretty big. And even then, I mean, I, I think that uh, uh, certainly focusing on ones that are focusing are, are that are going to become roll-up centric are, are great as well. And that's one of the reasons why I think Ethereum is so far ahead of a lot of its, you know, quote unquote competitors. Mm. So I think, you know, that makes Ethereum the blue chip, right? Um, in terms of other altcoins, you know, if, if it's a layer one, and especially if it's in the top 50, like it's probably going to have these phases where it does relatively well. And, and I think part of the reason you see some of these different projects go up is, as I mentioned earlier, you just have this money ball that floats from one project to another. And a lot of times they're, they're chasing like DeFi incentives, right? I mean, like Avalanche had like a, I don't remember exactly what it was, but you know, a couple hundred million dollar DeFi incentive to go use Avalanche's is DeFi ecosystem. Uh, so you have people sort of hopping around from one project to another. Uh, it happened on Solana not that long ago, right? I mean, Solana went crazy. Then Avalanche went crazy. Now you said Luna's doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just going to keep happening, right? I think people are going to keep speculating. And I think part of it, too, is, you know, when I look at projects, again, it's, a, it's an optimization problem, right? And I've talked about this before, the blockchain trilemma of optimi- uh, you have to optimize security, scalability, and decentralization. And, and some projects will have claimed to completely solved it. They haven't, right? They're, they're definitely pulling the wool over your eyes somewhere if they claim that. Um, uh, so, so what I look for is I really, I really value decentralization, but not everyone does. And, and that's an important distinction is, look, there are more centralized projects out there. That doesn't mean they can't give you a good ROI, right? I mean, like, think about everything in our world that exists today that's centralized, right? I mean, like, everything is, I agree. you know, like, but that doesn't mean you can't make money on them. So you can certainly make money on centralized projects. So I think you kind of have to look at, like, what do you think the market's going to value as well? Not just what I value. What do I think the market's going to value? Um, and so, like, I, I have positions on a lot of the layer ones, right? A lot of them. Uh, most of them, in fact. I mean, if they're in the top 25 and they're layer one, there's a good chance I have a position in them. Uh, basically, just because, look, I mean, I don't know ultimately what the market is, is ultimately going to value. Clearly, there are some people that like centralization. Look at what the Binance Smart Chain, look what BNB's done. It's in the top five even though the Binance Smart Chain is extremely centralized. And as I've said before, the Binance Smart Chain just started off as a clone of Go Ethereum. It's not like it's that complicated technology. They just raised the gas limits, basically. And you know, they changed some other things to make sure the gas fees are, are a lot lower. But at the same time, it's extremely centralized. And and I know some people are having trouble keeping the nodes synced. So you have to wonder, like, well, what are the... There, there's certainly risks on each, on each one. So, like, I look at decentralization. I mean, that's why, I mean, I like I love Ethereum. Cardano is relatively decentralized as well. The problem with Cardano is they don't even have useful smart contracts out right now. So we're kind of, we're all growing old waiting for it, right? I mean, it's no, uh, and, and, I, and I've said that, I mean, I, I was talking about Cardano on my channel at two cents, but I'm not going to sit up here and say like it doesn't have any issues. They do. And I, I think ultimately, and they finally, you know, they finally, I've, I've finally seen them start talking about more than they used to, uh, you know, transitioning to, to becoming roll-up centric as well, like Ethereum, which makes me happy. Um, but you know, the Avalanche, another good one. I also look at, at who's running it, right? Like, and I think that's like the number one thing for me is, is the person. Like, I like to, I like to bet on people. Um, it's like, you know, like if you bet on Elon Musk 
for the last decade, you're doing relatively well, right? Like if you just invested in anything Elon Musk uh, was working on, you'd be doing relatively well. It's sort of like saying like with Ethereum, like, you know, you're, you're sort of betting on, um, I mean, obviously there's Vitalik, but I mean, you're, you're betting on all those developers and whatnot to sort of come through. With, with Polkadot, you have Gavin Wood, who, you know, he, he came from the, the original Ethereum team. Obviously with Cardano, you have Charles Hoskinson. Uh, with, with Avalanche, you have Amin. It, it, he's like a, you know, he's a pretty famous professor, okay? Um, a, a lot of these, a lot of these layer ones, you, you know, you have to have really a, a, a successful person at the head and, and a motivated person. And that's, that's a lot of times what it comes down to. Like, I want to bet on someone that I think is going to run the race. And I, I don't mind my investments sort of growing, riding their coattails, you know? Um, yeah. so that, that's, that's what I look for, right? So I, so I look for the right person and the right idea, but you can have the right idea that never, never makes them. There's been plenty of examples in history where the, the better idea ultimately lost out because they just had bad marketing or not the right person leading it. Totally agree. Um, and honestly, you could look at lightning as a pretty interesting example, right? There are some folks in Bitcoin that are like really interested uh, in lightning. It's hard to say if that was like a huge success or a failure in general. It's like that was a really good scaling solution that got put on top of Bitcoin, but it's kind of like three years too late. Uh, right. And in, in the end, you had so many things crop up in the meantime that it kind of stole market share in general. So I feel like speed actually is pretty critical. Um, and just, you know, one last theory to run by you here. And then I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll keep you on here long. You know, the way I think about this is the amount of value that I think is going to flow onto blockchains is gigantic. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to make lunatic. I sound like one of these people that I thought was a lunatic four years ago, but I think there's a decent chance that crypto flip into the stock market in 10 years. I think it's going to be huge. So when you look at that, I actually don't really love the idea of all that value resting on one underlying chain. I actually kind of do like the idea of having multiple different chains just as almost like a some amount of diversification if there was ever a critical error or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you know what I would also point to is like, I think a lot of what crypto is, is digital property rights in general. So I think the observation that the market will value decentralization when it comes to, because the amount of decentralized something is, the more, more secure your property rights are in general. So that's almost like kind of like the United States, right? We have very strong property rights that get upheld by courts and stuff like that. You rather own an asset in the United States than really anywhere else. But guess what? China is a gigantic country too. <laughs> you know, you've seen by Ant Financial and what's going on with Jack Ma that your property rights aren't that secure over there. But guess what? People still invest in China. They just attach a discount rate to it, right? So, like, I, I do think there's room for different, uh, you know, sets of values, ideologies, et cetera. And maybe the market will value decentralization more so than anything else. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I really don't like this emerging value where it's like, this is moral Everything else is immoral. It's not going to work because this is the best. It's almost like you're like, hey, uh, the U.S. has the best form of government. Democracy is the best form of government, and nothing else is going to exist. It's like, mm -hmm. take a look around you, dude. I I'm American. You know, I've, first of all, I was grown up. My parents told me the U.S. is the best country in the world. That's a whole thing for another time anyway. But, like, I believe that. I love America. But I think that's crazy. That would be really arrogant of me to say this is the best, and nothing else should exist because this is the best. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. I feel like that that's the level of discourse that we're currently at with it. And I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. I mean, I, I agree. I think that we're going to have a multi-chain world. Like, I don't, I don't think we're going to have just like a single, a single chain that's going to rule them all. I think oh, there's going to be, you know, and every, there's going to be a lot of chains that sort of fill their own niche. Right. And, 
Um, and, and, and it's probably because, too, like some people are going to prefer one chain over another. There's not necessarily right. a correct answer, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of different car companies because there's not one correct car, you know, um, <laughs> right. Like, you know, I, so I, I think that they're not all going to survive. Um, certainly, like a, a lot of them will probably eventually die out. But I, I, there's certainly a lot that will survive. And, and you know, it, it's also possible, too, that in 10 years, the, you know, the top 10 could have five or seven cryptocurrencies in it that don't even exist today, for all we know, you know, mm-hmm. because... I mean, every cycle, right, you go back two or three years from any given year and you'll always find coins that aren't, aren't in the top 10 anymore, you know? So I think we have to consider that as well because every, every sort of every cycle, there's, there's like these new ideas and how we can, how we can optimize things. And you're going to have all these new teams. It's sort of like it's basically capitalism, right? It's, it's, it's people yeah. are finding a, you know, you, you look at the space, you, you say, all right, well, uh, I think I can do it better than these guys. So I'm going to create a project and, and now these projects, they all, they all of a sudden, they, they basically immediately start off with much higher market capitalizations because people recognize, uh, you know, the, the, the space is legitimate. But I, I, I would agree with you. I don't, I don't think there's going to be just a single, single chain to, to sort of rule everything. I think there's going to be a lot of different chains. Uh, but with that said, you know, there still were some car companies that died out, right? Like, it's not like every sure. one of them survived. So mm-hmm. there's going to be some of these layer ones, I think, that will die out. It's just a matter of, I think the safest thing <coughs> is like, you know, have your blue chips, Bitcoin and Ethereum, for sure. You, you, I think everyone should have that mm-hmm. at the very least. Uh, and then, yeah, like pick out, pick out a few other ones, right? And, and, and you can speculate on them. And hopefully, they, hopefully they're the ones that stand the test of time and ultimately went out. But right now, it's, it is somewhat a guessing game. You know, as, as sure as we are about any project, whatever altcoin anyone's married to, you really don't know what's going to happen in five or ten years. You know, you, you really have no idea. Um, so yeah, I think it's good to have a lot of different projects in your portfolio, but not too many, right? You don't want to be over diversified. Uh, and we'll hopefully have a multi-chain world as different chains sort of fill, fill different, you know, niches. Yeah, absolutely, man. You've been super generous with your time, Ben. It's been a really interesting conversation. If folks want to find out more about you, what you're doing at Into the Cryptoverse, your channel, what's the best way to, uh, follow you, find out more, whatever. Yeah, so my YouTube channel, um, and then I have Benjamin Cowan. You can just like search it in, in YouTube, and then I also do have a Twitter. Uh, Into Cryptoverse is my Twitter handle. So those are probably the best best ways to find me. Awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much for your time, man. This has been a ton of fun, and uh, I'll have to do it again soon. All right, appreciate it. Take care. All right.